Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 196. Is it 196? That it is. The 196th live stream. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. I am, of course, sitting with Dr. Heather Hying, as so often as for all of our live streams. And uh, we are, well, frankly, a little discombobulated because um, things are moving apace in the world and uh, takes a lot of processing. But in any case, we... Um, we have uh, quite a number of interesting things to discuss today. Uh, we've got a little business to take care of up top. What have I missed? You're looking at me like I missed something normal and essential. Just waiting for you to <laughs> wind down. Okay, <laughs> to wind down. It's as if there's a spring in me that has perhaps a little too much tension. And, it, yeah. It's possible that is true for all of us at the moment. It's, uh, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's a rough moment for mm -hmm. sure. So come join us on Rumble if you're watching somewhere else. Uh, subscribe to our channel there, please. Uh, if you're watching live, join the watch party at Locals. At Locals, you can also find early release of guest episodes of Dark Horse, private monthly Q&A, which we're doing tomorrow. It's uh, the it's usually the last Sunday of the month at 11 a.m. Pacific. We're doing a little early this month because we're going to be elsewhere. Uh, we've got AMAs. Uh, Zach and I did an AMA. Uh, Brett has done them. We have access to our Discord. Lots of stuff going on at Locals. We encourage you to join us there. Uh, and uh, we're not doing a Q&A after this live stream today, but we will be doing this private Q&A tomorrow. And then we will be doing a Q&A after our next live stream, which is this Tuesday rather than Wednesday, after which we will have three weeks uh, without any live streams. But there will be a couple of guest episodes dropping during that time. You will have to hold your questions during that time. Um, I thought we were maybe going to do some AMAs during that time. Actually, you won't have to hold your questions, but stay tuned for information on when you can uh, open the pressure release on your questions. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on my game here any moment. You'll see. So as always, we have uh, three sponsors at the top of the hour, uh, organizations, products that we actually truly vouch for. Without further ado, let's begin those. Our first sponsor this week is Biome, maker of knobs, N-O-B-S. Knobs is a new kind of dentifrice. Dentifrice is anything you use to clean your teeth, toothpaste or powders or knobs. Knobs are fantastic. Biome, that's biome without the E on the end, is focused on transparency, safety, and efficacy of its products. It is truly fantastic. Let's talk fluoride. Fluoride is the anti-cavity ingredient in most toothpaste that you already know about. But as we discuss in our book, the fluoride in drinking water and toothpaste is not in the molecular form found in nature, nor has it ever been part of our diet. And ever more research is pointing to the neurotoxicity of fluoride exposure, especially in children. Knobs from Biome does not contain fluoride, but unlike competitor products, Knobs does include a different, far better remineralizing agent. Knobs uses hydroxyapatite. Hydroxyapatite is the main component of the enamel in your teeth, and it is in your bones as well. It is as effective as fluoride in remineralizing teeth without the toxicity of fluoride. Hydroxyapatite doesn't merely stop cavities from forming. It can even arrest tooth decay once it's underway. Wow. Knobs also has no abrasives like charcoal or baking soda and has no sulfates, parabens, phthalates, microplastics, no BS. It's right there in the name. Furthermore, Knobs comes in the form of a dehydrated tablet, which allows them to be shelf-stable without preservatives. Take a tablet. Chew it uh, a few times and then brush as normal. Your teeth are going to feel fantastically clean because they are. Also, unlike toothpaste, TSA has no interest in knobs because they're tablets. So if you're flying with knobs, you don't risk losing your dentifrice to security. So check out knobs at www 
com slash darkhorse. That's betterbiome without the e.com slash darkhorse. Listeners can enjoy 15% off the first one month supply of knobs. So go to betterbiome.com, betterbiome without the e slash darkhorse. Uh, and discover the great new way to clean your teeth. I really do love knobs. I appreciate it every time I go to brush my teeth. Indeed. And they've actually got, um, many people prefer a minty taste in their in their dentifrice, as do I, but they've got a new flavor, which if you're not someone who uh, craves mint in your dentifrice, they've got a vanilla flavor that um, I'm something of a connoisseur of vanilla, having lived in one of the vanilla uh, producing capitals of the world in northeastern Madagascar. Um, and while I prefer mint to vanilla, uh, it's actually quite compelling. So they've got more new flavors as well now. I have yet to try that. I will say at some point, at some point when the world is not doing uh, so many appalling and difficult to understand things, we should have a conversation about why it is that we read mint as synonymous with clean and fresh. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that's kind of an interesting conversation to have. But all right, I digress. Our second sponsor this week is Maddie's all-time favorite. You may hear her snoring in the background, although if she knows what we're talking about, she'll probably wake right up. It's Sundays. Sundays makes dry dog food, but it's not your usual dry dog food. This is no standard-issue burnt kibble. Still, the standard high-end burnt kibble that we were feeding Maddie seems to please her well enough. She's a Labrador. Labs will basically eat anything. What possible difference was she going to show an interest between her usual kibble, a widely available high-end brand, and Sundays? We were wrong. Maddie loves the food that Sundays make, seriously loves it, and uh, you were just noticing this morning when you were feeding her uh, that uh, she knows when she's getting the the Sundays, and she hops and skips and twirls and dances. It is is really true that she, I think, recognizes either the bag or the Velcro closure. Something about it is Pavlovian and causes her to know that this is is the good stuff. This is going to be a really good meal. Yeah. Um, Sundays is the first and only human-grade air-dried dog food. Air-drying combines the best of cooked and raw approaches, like raw air-drying preserves nutrients and tastes better than high heat methods. Better than raw, though, Sunday's unique air-drying process includes a kill step, which kills pathogens. So unlike freeze-dried raw or frozen raw dog foods, there is no food safety or handling risk with Sundays. Combining the nutrition and taste of all-natural human-grade foods with the ease of a zero-prep ready-to-eat formula, Sundays is an amazing way to feed your dog. There's no fridge, no prep, no cleanup, no gross wet dog food smells. It's a total pleasure for the human interacting with it, which is a bonus. Sundays has no artificial binders, synthetic additives, or other garbage. All of Sunday's ingredients are easy to pronounce and healthy for dogs to eat. In a blind taste test, Sunday's outperformed leading competitors 40 to 0. And our own little anecdote, Maddie, our Labrador, supports that results. Do you want to make your dog happy with her diet and keep her healthy? Try Sunday's. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Receive 35% off your first order. Go to sundaysfordogs.com slash darkhorse or use code darkhorse at checkout. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com forward slash darkhorse. Switch to Sundays and feel good about what you are feeding your dog. Our final sponsor this week is Seed, a probiotic that really works. If you've tried probiotics before and got nothing out of it, try Seed. It's designed differently from other probiotics. It's designed better. It actually works. Seed helps improve the health of your gut microbiome, which means that it supports you becoming healthier overall. Our resident gut microbes directly impact the development and function of the immune system. Even before we're born, microbes inform our immune system, teaching our body how to distinguish between benign substances and pathogenic antigens, that is, substances that our body doesn't recognize as its own. You can support your gut immune access in a variety of ways, including by prioritizing sleep. 
New research suggests that the gut microbiome has its own circadian clock, and that changes to your normal rhythms can disrupt your microbes and the important functions they perform. Thus, prioritizing regular sleep can thus can thus that's a lot of thuses uh, can help keep your gut immune axis healthy. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic also supports your gut immune axis. Seed is a plant-based prebiotic and probiotic with 24 strains have been clinically or scientifically studied for their benefits. 16 of those 24 strains are specifically geared towards digestive health, and four of the 24 probiotic strains are known to promote healthy skin. Your skin, like your gut, has its own microbiome. Seed supports both gut and skin health. Seed is free from 14 major classes of allergens, including but not limited to sugar, animal products, soy, gluten, peanut, glyphosate, dairy, shellfish, and corn. And seed is basically double-hulled with its capsule and capsule design. It is engineered to maintain viability, not visibility, viability through your digestive tract until it reaches your colon where you want it. And the same design makes it resistant to oxygen, moisture, and heat, meaning that no refrigeration is necessary. Seed's daily symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. We have heard from several people who have used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 daily symbiotic. That's seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse. Awesome. And I have turned off my device. All right, where should we start? Where would you like? Ah, um, why don't you, uh... Today we had an annular eclipse, the world did. And um, much of the world, of course, didn't see it, but in the U.S. and parts of the U.S. it was visible. And uh, here in Washington, we didn't get 100%, we got about 80%. And um, it's just, it's, it's notable to think about astronomical reality that changes not a bit with all of the chaos that we humans are creating down here on Earth. Uh, An annular eclipse in which uh, the new moon comes between the Earth and the sun, thus obscuring part of the sun, or if you were in the path of of totality, all of the sun, um, does depend on you being on Earth. But nothing that we do down here changes uh, what it is. And that, especially in these so trying times, um, feels even more important than ever to be thinking about things that exist outside of human experience. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's, I think it's over everywhere now. I think it must be. Um, uh, but it's, the experience is seeing the sun become a crescent uh, and, and then becoming unacrescent. <laughs> a crescent not a crescent again uh and of course it's a shape that we're accustomed to only seeing with regard to the moon in terms of um large astronomical objects in the sky um but it is is highly unusual and it raises as do all eclipses and many other events as well for me the question of what people who lived in cultures without astronomy without an understanding of astronomy uh must have thought right and uh, I think I think the answers will be different depending on how close to developing astronomy they were. You know, the Maya had astronomers and astronomy, but I don't know uh, that their understanding of what was going on extended to being able to predict annular eclipses, for instance. Nor do I know to what degree the knowledge of the astronomers, the astronomer class, uh, extended into the population. So whereas now anyone with the internet 
could have seen that there was going to be an eclipse and whether or not they fully understand what that means, they could at least know it was coming and not go outside and be freaked out by what they saw in the sky. Uh, but this would have been a very different experience uh, not so long ago for everyone on the planet. Um, many, many points in response. One, I do think that there is something quite comforting about the fact that this is an event that is beyond human interference. Yes. And this is, I hope that this is not too dark uh, perspective, but, you know, during the eclipse, we watched a raccoon who would not ordinarily have crossed our yard in the day, um, trundle across our yard. Could be just a coincidence. Well, it he could... appeared to be trying to steal kayaks. <laughs> there is that, but of course he had that opportunity every other day of the week and he didn't do it. So um, there is the question about whether or not, yeah. uh, you know, but let's imagine <clears throat> human beings uh, don't wise up anytime soon and take themselves out. Eclipses will still happen. They will yeah. still have effects on other creatures. And even if we, yep. as I fear, <clears throat> were to take out higher life on the planet, eclipses will still happen. Mm -hmm. 100 million years from now, there will be something equivalent to raccoons that will be momentarily confused by these things. If an so, eclipse happens on a planet bereft of life, does it still happen? Well, yes, it does. It sure does. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, it could confuse microbes, photosynthetic plants in ways that would be totally uninteresting, and then it can confuse creatures with cognitive processing because the event's so rare that they wouldn't have a processor for it or whatever. But anyway, there's something interesting and comforting about that, um, that, you know, even the universe is really just not about us, you know. Right. Um, we, we, are, we are fortunate to have our position in it, but um, we could screw that up and it, uh, the universe will, will hum along. That's right. And I think, you know, this is a point... Um... A point that I used to make to my and our students a lot, and it's it's how I opened up uh, the story that I tell of uh, the boat accident that I was in that almost killed me in Galapagos, leading study abroad, um, which is that um, nature is, and there are exceptions, of course, sometimes you will have a run-in with something that very much wants to get you, right? But in general, nature is not out to get you, and the truth is in some ways, you know, I find it a relief, but many people find it at first terrifying. Uh, the truth is actually that nature is indifferent to you, mostly, yep. right? And uh, astronomical events demonstrate that. And you know, the closer it is to both our space and our time scale, uh, the more likely that truth is to be muddied. Um, that uh, you know, obviously, things like uh, pathogens uh, who have you know an interest in uh, infecting a host. Uh, you know, the, the goal is not harm. The goal is their own success. So there is still kind of an indifference, even when um, the indifference on the other side uh, means that a win for them is a harm to you. But the goal is not the harm. Right. And uh, as, as you know, but uh, for our listeners' benefit, uh, in my dissertation, one of my questions was, why are species more uh, densely packed as you get to the equator. And uh, part of the answer to that is very shocking, which is that as you get closer to the equator, um, the selective environment is dominated by things with a contrary interest, things that are in one way or another hostile to your well-being. And that is, in fact, a more hospitable environment than in the temperate zones, where the biggest challenge is the arbitrariness of the weather. And that arbitrariness of the weather is 
so difficult to deal with because you can't rely on it to be hostile, right? Some days it smiles on you and the next day it frowns on you. And that arbitrariness is a destroyer of species. It's harder to evolve a response to it. So um, what Dick Alexander, um, mentor to both of us, your graduate advisor, uh, called Darwin's hostile forces, um, really does divide importantly along this abiotic versus biotic line, where the, the abiotic stuff, the weather, the climate, the volcano, the earthquake, right? Um, not only does not know you exist, and can, but it also cannot respond to you. There is no way that you can do something differently to uh, change what it does. You might be able to outwit it. Outwit is the, a weird word there because there's no wit on the other side. There's no potential for wit on the other side. But you may be able to use your wits uh, to get around the problem that it has caused for you. But there is no game. There is no enduring game. There is no back and forth. There is no play, right? And you know, play can be very, very dire. I use play as sort of a, a technical use here. Whereas if it's biotic, there is the potential for a, a call and response, for a give and take, for for uh, for some kind of interaction, and uh, you know we we confuse those two things at our at our peril. Um, we do, and you know, an, an investor would understand this because mm. in an investment context, let's say that you you know you're running a, a firm that makes a something, right? You know who your competitors are. You have a rough sense of what they will understand about what they might do to get in your way, and you can plan for that future. Right. Whereas let's say that you make the same thing, but the energy markets are going to fluctuate with battles mm. uh, across the globe that you can't predict because those battles are responsive to geopolitical events that are outside your expertise or maybe outside of any our ability, of our ability to even monitor the things that cause them to happen. How do you plan for that, right? You're, you've, you've got, you know, production ready to go and then suddenly mm. your supply of plastics dries up because... You know, a pipeline is blown up by somebody or a war starts. And so anyway, it's, it's the arbitrary thing that's harder to deal with, right? Your competitor is in one way just simply reliable, mm -hmm. right? You know, you know, you can put yourself in their shoes and you can plan accordingly. Yes, unless, unless they begin acting out of spite, right, in which uh, they are willing to harm themselves in order to do harm to you, uh, their actions should be predictable, and even spite can be predictable, but it does change the game. Yeah, and in fact, there's one interesting place. Um, so as Heather points out, spite, the definition, the technical definition, is the willingness to accept a cost in order to inflict a cost. And this is, lots of things are spite, like policing. We pay to have a police force. That's a cost that we as a civilization pay in order to inflict costs on criminals so that they will decide not to commit crime, right? So spite is an important hmm. mechanism. I got, hmm. Yeah, spite, prison, hmm. uh, Police, prisons, all of those disincentives are costs that we pay because... Yeah, I guess I, I would not think to classify it in in, in spite territory. Um, obviously, the goal is to reduce the need for the thing that right. you are oh, doing. A, uh, policing, uh, whereas, yeah. um, you know, game theoretically, you're right, just the, you know, as I said, and then you said, the definition of spite is just uh, being willing to incur a cost to inflict a cost. Um, but if the goal is a long-term reduction in costs all around, um, that feels like it's not long-term spite. It, well, I mean, the, the whole point is why is there spite at all? Why would you ever accept a cost to inflict a cost? And the answer is for long-term reasons. So 
it's sort of the you know it's the it's the reason that we see the pattern and have a name for it. Well, uh, you know, but individuals individuals behave in ways um, that really do seem to be simply counterproductive for both them and the individuals. Oh, sure. There's lots of maladaptive behavior. Or, and, that, uh, and that is very often where spite shows up in yeah, a game theoretic People context, are very often, uh, especially in modern times, where you don't correctly perceive where your interests are because, right. you know, you're in a bar a thousand miles from home and somebody says something insulting and you don't understand that you there's no conceivable game that could be reached by punishing them, right? That kind of thing. Um, but... You almost sound like you're speaking from experience, which I, I don't think you are. No, I'm, I'm pretty good at staying out of bar fights for various various reasons. Yep. Um, but uh, where was I going with the spite? There was some important point, but I've now forgotten what it was. Oh, well. Get about bar fights. Um, uh, I did. I got it. Here's what it was. There's an interesting example of what you're talking about, about spite in the business context that is actually written into our legal structure. Okay. So anyway, this is a weird conversation to be having, but um, the there is an antitrust provision, which I think is now not enforced very much. Antitrust was effectively gutted, I think, during the Reagan administration. But there used to be laws designed to facilitate good competition and stamp out counterproductive competition. Competition that destroys wealth is bad. There's no, we, there's no reason that we as a society should want to see that kind of competition. What we want to see is competition that drives us to innovate and make the pie bigger. Um, the antitrust violation in question is you are not allowed to sell your product at a loss in order to drive your competitor out of business, mm -hmm. right? A big firm can sell its stuff so low that nobody can compete with it because you're taking a loss. And the point is you do that until your competitors are all gone and then you jack the price up and you recover the money that you uh, lost in the early phase. That's bad for us all, mm -hmm. right? It means that the market doesn't get to set the proper price and that we get gouged as consumers. So anyway, um, we uh, tried to hedge that out with spite, right? We make it a, a crime and we penalize you enough that you it's not a productive behavior to engage in. Um, which we don't do anymore, but uh, but nonetheless, it was it was an indication of how civilization was really dependent on wise spite being employed. Well, I mean, it's 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 tough too. I don't I don't know this history, but I imagine that economies of scale being what they are, you know, large companies that sell a hundred products um, would absent this uh, this what is ruling this piece uh, of legislation provision, yeah. this provision. Um, want to be able to sell 10 products at a loss because as long as the 90 other products were selling at a profit, they weren't on balance selling at a loss, whereas a company that only sold 10 products can't afford to sell half their products at a loss, right? Um, but it's also true that um, if you're larger, you are buying more and therefore you are getting them at a lower cost. Ah. And so you can drive the, the, your competitors, your smaller competitors out of existence uh, without taking a loss. Although, you know, the, so it seems that a one-to-one -one comparison isn't quite fair because the profit margin uh, is is what ends up mattering. And I have no doubt that there is a huge amount of case law arguing exactly that question, mm -hmm. right? Is this an, a, what I would call an efficiency of scale that a normal person would call an economy of scale? Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> All right, it's just a pet peeve of mine. But um, No, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm objecting to you calling me a normal enormous. person. I know, yeah. just in this one regard. But... Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I'm sure that this has been argued, 
you know, if you think about something like Amazon, uh, you know, if Amazon can spend right. 10 years losing money and drive everybody else out of the position of middleman so that whatever you buy, you buy through Amazon, then the, we're, we're its bitch for the rest of eternity, right? <laughs> oh, but they would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think they might. Um, so I wanted to, uh, if we can switch gears a little bit out of the, uh, the spite thing, I wanted to point out that this eclipse mm-hmm. is what is called an annular eclipse. Mm-hmm. And annular eclipses, we... I think the last major one that we encountered, maybe not, but I think the last major one that we encountered, we were living in Michigan, and it was total for us. Um, yeah, I mean, there have been, there've been several since then. Annulars? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the last one I remember, okay. maybe it's maybe the weather made it impossible to sure. see them. Mm-hmm. But I remember the annular eclipse was coming, and it's like, oh, you're going to be in the path of a total eclipse, but it's annular. What that means is that the moon, by virtue of its distance from us is small relative to the sun. So it doesn't completely cover it and it doesn't turn dark. Yeah. The, so, the, the two distances, right. You know, distance from earth to moon and moon to sun. Yeah. The relative size yeah. of these two things in the yeah. sky means that the moon may cross the center of the sun, but it doesn't completely close it out. And because of the light amplification capacity of the eye, it really doesn't get very dark at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, does the sun look weird. Boy, does the sun look weird, but here's the thing. So I remember during that eclipse sort of feeling like, Oh, that's too bad. It's not a real eclipse, right? And so I was kind of not even really thinking of it. And then it happened. And in Michigan, you're talking about. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I remember distinctly realizing that the world around me, though not dark, had changed radically in a way that implied all kinds of weird stuff about things that I apparently had misunderstood every day of my life until then. Are you going to provide examples? I'm going to provide the one example <laughs> okay. that matters, but it was a million versions of it, which was that every place where light came through trees or anything else yeah. became an image of the eclipsed sun with the moon in front of it. Yeah. And it was like, I didn't realize that every little blot of sun that I was looking at was a, yes, admittedly out of focus image of the sun. Right. I just thought it was like a splotch of light. Mm-hmm. And here it was like, oh, God, what did this just imply? And yes, so anyway, I, I live I live among shadows and I did not know that they were all individual shadows. Projections. It's Pro- almost yeah. like, you know, it's like a fractal Plato's cave. You mm-hmm. get out of the cave, you're out in the real world, but you're still in the cosmic cave looking at shadows on the wall. So I, mean, I, I remember this, too, very intensely. And. I remember later, the first time I was walking in some city uh, at night and came under one of those new LED uh, street lamps that cast these crazy grid shadow things. Um, and and I don't even know how to describe them. I think probably most urban dwellers or urban visitors have experienced these now. Yeah, you, see, you see a reflection of the, the LED array. On yeah. The, on the and it's... Um, it's ugly yeah and it's disconcerting and it feels dystopian and you know hyper modern and the first time i saw it my first thought was the only thing i've ever seen that reminds me of that before was those shadows of the sun during the annular eclipse in michigan and yet they are so utterly different in origin yeah it's like it's like pixelated light it's yeah, like an yeah. insult to nature. Right. Um, you know, unlike yeah. a beautiful glow of even, you know, an incandescent bulb or something like that. It mm-hmm. just, it, it's almost monstrous. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think so. Yes. Uh, aesthetically. It's aesthetically yeah. monstrous. Um, but 
the last point I wanted to make about the annular eclipse and the fact that it reveals this thing suddenly mm -hmm. is that, um, A, you make an excellent point, I think, that the ancients, if the ancients were completely inept with respect to understanding what was going on in the sky, then they would be very caught off guard mm -hmm. by an eclipse. A society that had begun to figure out what the at least the pattern of movements across the sky was so that they could predict the pattern even if they didn't understand what it was. Right. They um, might not predict the eclipse, but they would at least know where the moon, even though it is invisible to us at new, would be in the sky. And they would be able to say, that must be the moon crossing in front of the sun. Right. Which brings me to our little modern predicament. Um where you and I have uh, now moved to a new place. We have an actual uh, view of the horizon for the first time ever. We've always lived <laughs> in forest before. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it has revealed something about the motion of the moon that is indeed puzzling. And I'm doing a good job of not looking it up because I'm enjoying trying to sort through exactly how it works. But the basic so, observation... Whereas, let me just interrupt you for a moment. Whereas the sun rises... Um, farther to the north, the closer to the summer solstice, which if you're in the northern hemisphere, as most humans are, is in late June <clears throat> and, and is rising close, farther to the south, um, the closer to the winter solstice you are. That is a predictable trajectory through the across the horizon over the year. Yes. That at each of the equinoxes, that's about equidistant between the northernmost and the southernmost uh, rising of the sun, which is going to vary depending on where you are on the planet latitude wise. But um, you can predict it. You can say, okay, you know, if it's if it's October, it's going to be a bit like it is in February. And you know, and 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 like that. Whereas Yes. So it's a it's a an a, a sine wave across the year. Mm -hmm. um, where you could say, as soon as you correct the calendar for the slight error of the year not being an integer number of days, right. you can say this at this moment in the year, the sun is always going to rise at right at mm -hmm. exactly that point. At this moment, at this place, at this yep. at this place in time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the moon obviously goes through its year around the Earth in twenty eight days. Um, what it does on the horizon of the Earth is nuts. It is, <laughs> it's yeah. nuts. And it's not going to be that you just have to understand that that month is a moon year and fix it because when the moon is new, right? When the moon is new, the opposite of full, that is because you are looking at the dark side of the moon. It is on the same side of you as the sun, but that happens on the opposite side of the moon year, depending upon whether you're in spring or fall, mm -hmm. right? You're on the opposite. So the moon will be either fully lit or fully dark at the opposite point, depending upon where the earth is in its orbit. But anyway, the degree to which the moon moves per night yes. uh, and rises in a different place is absolutely befuddling, even though yeah. it's obviously so thoroughly understandable that the ancients nailed this one. I mean, you know, Venus is tough. The moon is not, yeah. right? But for us moderns, the moon's actually tougher than you think. Figuring out exactly where where it is going to rise. So I, you know, since we now have a view of a horizon and and a view of both the sunrise and the moonrise because of the way we face, um, I actually at at for the three, four, five, six days um, of the full moon and and moments around it, 
um, will set my timer. I, I will use modernity to help remind me if I am not already out there looking at it to make sure that I actually see it if if the horizon is actually clear, which of course for some months of the year, the Pacific Northwest, the horizon won't be clear enough to see it. But um, I, I, I sort of began thinking about this when we moved up here and I would be looking in one place, be like, where, where is it? And you know, it's a big horizon. You don't, you don't miss it when it does come up, but often it'd be like, wait, right. <laughs> it's over <Wasn't> there. It? <laughs> what, what happened? Just last night it was okay. Yeah. yeah. I will tell our audience because mm -hmm. they will find it fascinating and bizarre um, that when you say your timer, what that means in our house is a arbitrary selection of frog calls mm. um, and birds. It's and not birds, arbitrary. Yeah. I mean, I said, yeah. So I have. Well, I didn't say random. It's arbitrary. Yeah, I have neotropical. Um, I have, of course, own. Um, I've bought uh, and created, but most of the ones that I play on my phone are are purchased uh, bird and frog calls from the jungle. Uh, and so you get orpendulas and various frogs, and so that's what my alarms are set to in my timers, yep. um, as well. So that so, I don't I don't get um, crazy modern tones from Apple. I, I I get to briefly imagine that I'm back in the jungle. And it's really it's the counterpoint to the LED grids that you see in the shadows when you walk in a modern city, right? Yeah. This is you know okay, the alarm on a phone is a modern modern phenomenon, but what you've done is you, the intrusion is now frogs from somewhere, yes. which, you know, that ain't normal, but right. it's... Uh, it's also not jarring. Yeah. And it's, it's a nice jarring. way to wake up. Oh, it's lovely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just momentarily being called to some far off place by yeah. some frog call that you never hear yeah. at home. The aura pendulas are a little harsh, but uh, a little harsh. They're, that's the, there's uh, black and yellow uh, orioles they're related to. They're blackbirds, big black Amazonian, uh, all neotropical birds. Um, and they just, um, they're a little loud. Yeah. They're a little, a little jarring. Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear? I can do an Orpendula call. But okay. I, we've found actually that Orpendula is very a tremendous amount over their range. So this is really a... You, you've got the Central American Central call American. with a ch at the end, right? Yeah. Because in the Amazon... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. That um, is what they sound like. Yeah. Yep. That is what they sound like. Okay. So the last point I wanted to get to, I have a, a note to myself. It says if. I see that. Yeah. I, even I can read that. It's only two letters and it says it's if. two letters. I was able to get through two letters without the dyslexia overwhelming the note, but um, the annular eclipse, the one we saw back in Michigan that made the interesting projections on the ground that mm -hmm. alerted me that the normal projections were more than I had ever thought they were. It strikes me that there's some list of phenomena that suggest parts of physics that are not absolutely everyday experience, right? The fact that an object drops when you let it go is an absolutely everyday experience that implies something about physics. It's very hard to understand that all objects are attracted to each other. If that's true, you know, why do I not feel this pen attracted to this, um, this zebra? And the answer is because gravity is such a freaking weak force that you need something planetary scale before you can even detect it. It is pulling this pen to this zebra but it's undetectable by normal means we should but, be g glad now that gravity is not a spiteful god because uh, impugning impugning its strength uh might come back to haunt you well someday we'll do a little exploration of gravity the degree to which gravity is the key to everything that doesn't seem that it's being driven by gravity is amazing and i used to spend a lot of time uh, pushing students into that recognition um pointing out how my uh, bicycle, for example, is powered by gravity fusion, 
Um, but again, I digress. The point is there are certain phenomena that one has rare access to either in time, something mm -hmm. like a rainbow, yeah. right? Which you never know when it's going to happen, but you learn amazing things. I saw an entirely gray rainbow the other day. Oh, what? I, it was extraordinary. I have a, I have a picture actually, which is on my phone. So maybe at some point you're talking, I can send it to Zach and he can show it here. Um, I've never seen anything like it before, but it was an arc in the sky in a place that I've seen a full color rainbow. And it was so much fog and so much cloud and I was biking through it. And I, 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 I don't know what explained it. Right. Amazing. So, uh, all right, I'll, I'll give you one. Uh, I was driving a couple months ago and, uh, there was a rainbow and as mm -hmm. happens when you're driving and there's a rainbow, you know, you, it moves along with you, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Um, but I realized something which damn it. I should have realized before. Um, <laughs> uh, what I realized was that the rainbow reads as five or 10 miles off because of a heuristic in the mind that causes mm. you to put it in the context of mountains and buildings and things like as that. As if it's a physical, as if it's a as if it's fixed in space. Well, well, let's put it this way. I think it is almost fixed in space, but it's very close to you is the answer. Right? Yeah. It's very close to you. And the way I figured that out... And it would be like out, it would be changing other things about your universe if it were that big and close to you and followed the other rules of what matter does. Right. So it, it befuddles you because it behaves yeah. like a faraway object. The moon moves with you when you drive in a car. The mm -hmm. rainbow moves with you when you drive in a car. That seems to imply a very great distance. Yeah. Um. But no. And the way mm. this became obvious to me was that as I was driving, the, the mist in the air that was being broken up, that was breaking up the light mm -hmm. and causing the, the prism effect, was being intensified by the cars that were driving around me. They were kicking up spray. Oh, And yeah. yep. here's, here's the kicker. The spray, the rainbow continued and it was in front of the guardrails rather than behind them so whereas it looked like 10 miles away if i looked up into the sky <laughs> as it got near the ground it's like oh it's right there right um so anyway the point is we each had a personal rainbow a few feet from us you know and we thought you know because i say look a rainbow and then mm -hmm. somebody you know 15 feet from me says i see it too no actually you're seeing a different rainbow right yeah it looks identical but, oh, that's good. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But anyway, there's some list. Imagine that you are one of the, the blessed humans who had lived somewhere in which there were some rocks in your environment that were magnetic. Okay. Right? <laughs> I thought you were just blessed to have rocks. No, yeah. a lot of people have rocks. Yeah, but... I, I feel like that's true. Yeah, so yeah. imagine, you know, oh, this is your gray rainbow? Yeah, that's actually, that's interesting. That picture looks different from... Um, it looks far bluer than I remember the experience being. Um, and in fact, I see some color there. Uh, whereas with the naked eye, so this is, I'll just say that I was biking and this is at a place on San Juan Island called False Bay, uh, where it's often very foggy when it's no, it's not foggy anywhere else. And so as you're biking towards it, you can see like I'm biking into a cloud, I'm biking into a cloud and the experience of being in this place. Um, yeah, I actually wonder, I'm not sure, um, if this isn't an earlier one with, the, with one that felt like an actual rainbow. Uh, so is that? Okay. Okay. If this is the other day, then the, 
fascinating that once again, what you know, what I'm seeing on the screen here looks looks actually more colorful, although still not brightly colored as no, many of those it. are. Um, it was basically I was entirely in a fog bank, and yet I could see this this bow above me or and you know in front of me. Picture, which is not very clear, but it sort of demonstrates the fog. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think, and so you're just seeing the top of the top of the bow on this one. I yeah. think what's going on is that in general, when you see, well, actually, this is interesting because it's the counterpoint to what I saw driving. Mm. I wonder if that rainbow isn't far enough from you that the very unusual cloud bank that forms in that particular part of the island obscured. Yeah, that it basically grays out. So you're seeing a light intensity difference because the light is being broken up into spectrums that you're differentially yeah. sensitive to, but it's being basically projected on a, a gray mm-hmm. uh, atomizer of light. But that does suggest that that rainbow might perhaps have been farther from you than the one that I was seeing. So that's interesting. Yeah. So I guess the question is what we need and actually probably, I don't know how you do it, but there's got to be a way to figure out like the water droplets that are breaking apart the light that we see as a rainbow are actually some distance from you. Right. right? It seems like a rainbow is nowhere, but it, it isn't nowhere. Right. The, the particular raindrops that interact with the particular rays of light are somewhere. But there are conditions which make it possible for many people to have individual rainbows, right? So, so it, it is somewhere and some place um, but it is not everywhere in every place. Right. It, and it is some distance from you. And it would be interesting to figure out how you can deci- that you can determine the distance because you can't just do it based on the simple size of the thing. Because, right. of course, the angle yeah. of the light is going to affect the size of the thing relative to your field of view. Um, but there's got to be some set of observations you could make, three or four things that would allow you to isolate. Yeah, the things that broke up the light that I saw were... 15 meters from me or a mile from me or a foot from me. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know. But it it actually makes the more general point. If you were blessed enough to be an ancestor with access to rocks that were magnetic, and Mm -hmm. by the way, let me just explain why that would be the case. All rocks are composed of molecules that have two poles, but they are chaotically distributed such that they cancel each other out and there's no net magnetism. So... You just don't feel it most of the time. Every so often, a geological phenomenon, like the melting of something, will allow those atoms or will cause those atoms to become aligned in some way, right? Like imagine, I don't even know what what would be doing it, the the alignment of the Earth's magnetic field, the liquefaction of something that causes you to have an alignment so that all the Norths are pointing one way, all the Souths are pointing another way. And You you know this, but I find magnetism a about as difficult to parse as anything. It's, in it's really tough. So, I'm, I'm going to be of no help here. I obviously don't have it. Don't <laughs> I got like right hand rule, and that's about it. Right, but yeah. the point is, most humans would not have access to a magnetic rock. They wouldn't encounter one in their entire life. Right. Some people would have access to some rock that they could reliably go to over a lifetime. And be like, hey, let me show you this. You know. Yeah. And, and you would yeah. need, yeah, you would need two More such rocks yeah. uh, or a piece of metal or something, but. Um, But anyway, the point is, how many of these things are there that suggest a level of physics that is not implied by regular stuff? 
mm-hmm. right? You've got rainbows, you've got magnets, you've got um, the procession of a top, you've got... Projection of the sun during an annular eclipse. During an annual eclipse, exactly. Mm-hmm. All of these things imply another layer. And all of the greats... Tsunamis? Sure. There mm-hmm. you go. Yeah. The uncompressibility of water and its mm-hmm. relationship to between earthquakes and tsunamis, that sort of thing. Um, sublimation, right? Of of cr- one plate under another? Is no, that, no, no, no. Oh, you're talking. Oh, sublimation. Oh. <laughs> like if you live oh, chemical. Near, if you live okay. near a phase change a glacier. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mo- most people, I I think. Sub- what is subduction? Sublim- is what I was. Yeah, you were thinking, thinking of subduction. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But sublimation, the change of a, a solid to a gas without going through a liquid. Yeah. Right? Most humans mm-hmm. would probably have no experience of that in an entire lifetime because. The changes aren't abrupt in this way. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, you do have experience as a modern, uh, the ice in your freezer dehydrating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you, if, if you don't, get... if you don't work through your ice a lot, yeah. the ice ends up a, a weird, it's, it a, it's a, it becomes a weird consistency. And a weird taste because whatever lands on the surface over yeah. all of the months that it sits in your freezer gets concentrated in, mm-hmm. on an ever smaller surface area. Um, but anyway... What is that list of things that imply a deeper physics? And what relationship do they have to the way that we came to understand how all of the physics of the universe works? Mm -hmm. And what sort of developmental quirks caused the people who focused on these things and were like, no, hey, wait a minute. That Mm. that means something. Right. Right. Um, Yes. Yeah, we we could invoke mysticism or... How would we know? But the people who simply did that didn't make progress in their understanding. Right. And for some of these things, it might be hard to imagine what the practical use of understanding is. Uh, but for most of them, I mean, even even if there is no practical use for a particular thing, having the mindset, both individually and culturally, of, huh, I wonder why. Hmm, what's going on there? Is exactly the thing uh, that predicts whether or not those people and that individual will actually uh, become adept in the world. Right. And it's actually the defense of what we used to <clears throat> call basic science. Right. Right. The point is the people who pursued these things, I mean, maybe there were some of them that were hell bent on getting ahead, but that's not what does it. What does it is. Damn it. What does that mean? I've got to know. Right. right? I'm going to pursue this because it's going to drive me crazy until I figure it out. Yeah. What we used to call and still do to some degree basic science as opposed to applied science. And it's really, you know, (laughs) you know, STEM. Right. STEM is necessary. But um, the math is fundamental and the science builds on the math. And a lot of science builds on math so remotely that you don't actually necessarily need to know the math that it's building on. Um, Math and science. Um, are not inherently applied at all. Yep. Whereas the two middle initials in that acronym, tech and engineering, are inherently the applied versions. And increasingly, um, and I, you know, I think I think one of the reasons that many people end up thinking, oh, I'm not good at science. I don't do science and and, and math too. But let's just stick with science. Um, here because it's 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 our milieu more more intimately and more fundamentally. Um, many people end up believing that they're not good at science and then it has no relevance to them. 
uh, because the way it is taught to them and the way it is revealed into the world is actually an applied, what is the purpose? Here are the things you need to memorize. Uh, here's what we already know. Here are the facts. And none of those things are, are inherent to science. Right. It's it's not a memory game. It's not a what are the facts, ma'am. Um, and it's not a what use will this will this be to to us? And, you know, so, you know, if, if we we would give up a fair amount of our modern conveniences if the T and the E in STEM disappeared, obviously. But instead, what we're seeing is the shaving away of the S. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a, a Tim focus now in many places, too many places, as if the science, without the obvious application, without the obvious uh, focus on rote memorization, um, is kind of old school. That's so last century. Who needs it anyway? And everything else will collapse without it. Certainly the engineering and the technology will, but everything else will collapse without it. And I mean, th this is this is one of the grave errors of the 21st century. It is. Is and, abandoning the S in STEM. And it is actually making us, um, I don't want to say measurably, because that may be the one thing it doesn't do, but it is making <laughs> us absolutely stupider. Absolutely. It, absolutely stupider. And it's making yeah. us so much more likely to be uh, played, which is what is happening to us again and again, because people... Think, all the domains. It's like they think that science is about absorbing what we've learned through this mechanism that they don't really understand and don't get good at using. Absorbing what we've already learned and applying it to things that make our lives better. Right, which means, well, how would you do that? Well, I guess I would ask the experts in this field and then they would tell me and then I will report it as if I'm intelligent. And the answer is mm -hmm. no, actually you're, you're, you're propagating propaganda because you can't tell the difference because you don't have a bullshit detector that works because nobody taught you how to think. And, and oh, by the way... Most of the experts don't know the difference either. Right. They're, they're, the, they're the lead dummies. But right. what, you know, so here's the problem. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that there's a list of phenomena that implies a second layer to what drives reality. Um, obviously, the way if you really wanted to make, you know, really smart people, you would expose them to these things in isolation from the ability to look up why they are the way they are. And the question is, well, how can you figure out what this is? And you may yeah. not get all the way there, but... As we can... used to do in, when we were professors. Right. right. So, you know, the, the, the don't look it up phenomenon right. we have used as a title is mm -hmm. obviously a, a path not taken with respect to how education should work. Um, but what a missed opportunity. And I do wonder if the um, obviously increasing stupidity and pettiness of planet Earth is not in part downstream from just this one simple uh, bit of spreading myopia that, mm -hmm. you know, science is something, science is a matter of listening to the experts, um, which it just ain't. Right. Well, um, that was unexpected and uh, enjoyable. Yeah. And um, I'm wondering if we want to go next to... Roger Waters. All right. Uh, was there some? Uh, there, there are a number of other things we were we were thinking about going to today, but um... I think it's a reasonable thing to do, and I actually think that what we just did is pretty pretty good as an intro to it. I, yep. I do have to ask people uh, for a little bit of leash here, mm -hmm. because there's a way in which um, Roger Waters has become such a flashpoint, and this week is such a Terrible, terrible week in the history of planet Earth, especially if you uh, 
feel deeply the predicament of the Middle East, especially Israel, um, that in some sense I can full well understand the perspective that whatever may be true of Roger Waters and his uh, insights or lack thereof, that this ain't the week to be hearing from him. I can imagine that as a rational response. And there's a part of me that feels the same way. But the reason I say some leash is that I want people who know us to trust that we're exploring this for a reason. And the reason has to do with um, what good might be done by treading in this difficult uh, arena at this moment of um, maximum difficulty. Mm -hmm. Let me just say, we're not going to show Roger Waters' video. It's just, it's too long. I do encourage people to go look at it. Um, but I will describe it. He just, he put out, if you want to show the screenshot here, Zach, um, he just put out a five minute um, video about, um, a, a five minute video about uh, effectively, um, well, w what he is thinking, I think it was dated October 11th. <clears throat> so as of four days after um, the Hamas attack on Israel. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it takes the form of <clears throat> a an open letter, which he reads. And he describes his uh, desire for what he thinks should happen in the Middle East, which I regard as perfectly preposterous. Um, and then he... His, you find perfectly preposterous what he describes as what should happen? Yes, he basically mm -hmm. is calling for a ceasefire at a moment when, um, you know, you have more than a thousand Israeli citizens dead under the most barbaric intentionally barbaric circumstances conceivable and i don't know how many hostages there are but a huge number of people imperiled in what we know are terrible circumstances and are probably worse than we can imagine but you know ceasefire is just an incoherent idea at this moment that said um i want to explore a little bit <clears throat> the status of roger waters i have um said some things about the man and I want people to understand all of the related and uh, implied connections. Can I just, uh, I honestly have no idea to what degree our audience may not be familiar with what a Roger Waters is. I, yeah. I, I have no idea. So um, <clears throat> let me just say he was um, one of the, by, by some estimations, um, the lead creative uh, talent uh, in Pink Floyd um, at least after Sid Barrett uh, was no longer part of it. Uh, and, um, you know, Pink, Pink Floyd, the band, uh, of course, was an extraordinarily uh, insightful and unusual band in an era in the late 60s, 70s, through they put out their final uh, album, The Final Cut, in 1983, um, in an era of unusually uh, insightful bands. But they were, you know, they were unique among, uh, among unique entities. Yeah, they and were... They they were, were uh, let me let me just say um they they happen to be um you know one of the only bands that i actually listened to ever in high school because of my upbringing mostly with classical music and then i found them and went these people speak to me in a way that um and it was mostly i was listening to music that had been put out well before you know my time um not well before my time but <clears throat> many years to a couple decades um Enough so that actually one of the very few concerts I actually went to um, 
literally the night before I started college, I drove several hours to see Roger Waters live in concert. Yeah. Um, so this, you know, this, this is a music and a musician and an oeuvre that has been extraordinarily meaningful. Yes. And I would say also deeply meaningful to me. And I would say unambiguously meaningful to us. You and I bonded over a shared appreciation for this uh, when we met. Mm-hmm. And In high so, school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I would just change one thing about what you presented about the history. Mm-hmm. I really think you need to think about Pink Floyd as two bands. Yeah. There's the Sid Barrett band, and then there's what happened when Sid Barrett effectively lost his mind, left the band, and then there's the uh, Roger Waters and David, David Gilmore. Gilmore band that followed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most of the albums that people know, The Wall, The Dark Side of the Moon, are in that second version of Pink Floyd. Wish You Were Here. Yeah, Wish You Were Here, right. Animals. Yeah, Wish You Were Here, which is actually um, written, it is about Sid Barrett, I believe. The idea is it is it is Roger Waters' lament that his friend Sid Barrett is not present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it may be. But any, anyway, um, so Roger Waters has a kind of complex status in my mind. And I wanted to explore this because I think, especially this week, we are seeing, first of all, I mean, if there's, there's so much evil that has been, uh, we are forced to grapple with in light of the attack by Hamas on Israel, um, that there's, you know, there's no shortage of terrible outgrowths of these events. If there's one positive thing in my opinion, it is that the anti-Semitism that some of us have been seeing and trying to call attention to is no longer a rumor. Now everybody has seen it. Mm-hmm. It has been, uh, you know, the celebrations in uh, the street across the world tell you th- these are not people simply celebrating uh, a surprise attack. These are people who know what happened in that attack and are not embarrassed by it they are not troubled by it and that is so um the implications of it could hardly be more profound these are people who have zero empathy for the victims there even though the victims were innocent these were not this is not the israeli government mm-hmm. about which we could talk about what role they did or didn't play in setting the stage for this but literally innocent people including children no empathy for them whatsoever. So <clears throat> the anti-Semitism that many of us have been seeing and trying to raise the alarm about is now visible to many people who couldn't see it before. And that is um, a tiny positive thing compared to the horror that we've seen, but it is important because it's going to play a role going forward. It 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 is important. And I've, I've heard individually uh, from people who um, are extraordinarily sympathetic um, um, to to Israel, uh, who are saying now, I've been hearing Brett talk about uh, him seeing a rise in anti-Semitism, and I haven't seen it. And I didn't disbelieve that he was seeing it. Right. Um, you know, these, I'm not talking about, you know, haters or disbeliever. I'm just talking about people who are saying, I hadn't seen it. I didn't know what he was seeing. Uh, it was cryptic. And now it's not cryptic. Yeah. And people are reporting not just what we are seeing in public, but just at the individual level of people who others thought were friends aren't reaching out 
to ask, is your family okay? Right? Um, it, it, there, it's like the, the veil has fallen. And it has one, one friend of mine from Portland uh, said, um, it feels a little bit like what it felt like in Portland in mid-2021 <clears throat> when everyone had gotten behind, so many people had gotten behind the everyone must get vaccinated or else they're evil people. And uh, this is more terrifying yet and more heinous. It is. And I hope um, two things have happened. One, people who um, have no anti-Semitism to them at all couldn't see it and didn't know what to make of it. And right. this week they are seeing it and it is causing them to think anew. Right. which is good. Mm -hmm. But there's another thing that I hope will happen, which I haven't seen yet, but my guess is if I under, if I read the landscape correctly, this is almost certain to happen, at least in enough cases to matter. There are people, good people, who have been traversing the edges of this anti-Semitic landscape. They have been trying to understand what to think about the presence of Jews in organizations that they see as hostile to humanity and pharma, in government, people... Banking, yep. Right. And mm -hmm. they're trying to understand what yep. to do with it. And they are getting... They are trafficking in these sort of shallow end of the pool anti-Semitic tropes. They are trafficking in collective responsibility and guilt, which is really the sin qua non of anti-Semitism. Of, of, of all of the bigotry... All bigotry, that, uh, right. ...that does population-level broad-brush... If you're a member of X, you must be, because X has done bad things. If you are a member of X, you are a bad thing right. yourself. Instead of recognizing that there are bad Jews, of which there are many, mm -hmm. saying the Jews, that's the place where you cross the line. Mm -hmm. And the point is, and we will get back to the lineage level thing, which takes Jews out of this entirely and just says, actually, this is an evolutionary question that applies to an old style of interaction that all of us come from. Yeah. All of our ancestors did this. But anyway, we'll come back to that in a second. What I'm hoping is that some of the good people who have been experimenting at the fringe of this very bad style of thought, this very dangerous style of thought, will actually be made aware of what slippery slope they are standing on the edge of. And they will say, oh, I don't want to be there. That's not me. That's a violation of my own values. And they will step back from that slippery slope. I really hope that happens because there are a lot of people that I do regard as uh, fundamentally good who are experimenting with some fundamentally bad ideas and it is not helpful. Yeah. Um, but back to, back to Roger Waters. Um, I said a couple weeks ago on Twitter, and I do have a slight regret about the way I said it. I was trying <clears throat> to defend Roger Waters' right to speak. He had been uninvited to speak, I think at the University of Pennsylvania um, and I because had, he had been playing with Nazi tropes. Yeah, but that's actually a bad. Right, but rap. that, but th but that isn't that. That was the stated reason. I think so. We haven't said that yet. Here. I think yeah. the stated reason was anti-Semitism. The claims about his playing with Nazi tropes are absurd. Okay, he's not playing with Nazi tropes. This is somebody who is resolutely anti-Nazi and at a, at a familial level. Right. This is a person. His, his father died fighting the Nazis. Right. His father died fighting the Nazis, and he has been anti-Nazi, and he has been 
portraying Nazis as the evil sons of bitches that they were in his art for his entire history. Mm -hmm. So that's a bad rap. Okay. I don't think that that is that his, you know, putting on Nazi costumes and shooting at the audience is about him harboring Nazi sympathies. Mm -hmm. That's really, really wrong. Mm -hmm. But I do think, and I said in defending his right to speak, what I, what I said was that back when I was at Penn, Louis Farrakhan had come to speak and we all knew he was an anti-Semite and we went mm-hmm. anyway and I'm glad I did. And mm-hmm. I don't want to see Roger Waters shut down because of anti-Semitism. I think mm-hmm. he should be allowed to speak and people should go listen. Yeah. So I understood myself to be defending him, but I did acknowledge that I believed after all of the evidence that I had seen that in fact he did harbor anti-Semitism. But I want to be really clear about what that does and does not mean to me because I have a feeling that when people hear a Jewish person say that somebody is an anti-Semite, it implies things to them that are not at least inherently true. So you have heard, you, the audience, have now heard Heather and me talk about the fact that Roger Waters and Pink Floyd have a special importance to us. And unlike some of the stuff that I listened to back then, I actually still find that importance. Many of it, many of those things, you age out of them being useful. They're just not insightful anymore when you become older and wiser. Pink Floyd, there's still a lot of value. It actually stands up really well. Mm-hmm. And I go back and I listen to that stuff <clears throat> with regularity because it is meaningful. So what does that mean that I'm saying that this person who is responsible for things that I hold dear I believe harbors anti-Semitism, even though I'm a Jew, and that means that I believe he has some bias against people like me, some uh, unreasoned bias, some emotional bias that is not founded on facts. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just lay it out. A, I think um, We have not done a good job, we civilization have not done a good job figuring out what we think about the difference between binary categories and spectra, right? The fact that sex is being claimed to be a spectrum and that that's obviously tactical and sex isn't a spectrum, so we see the claim that something is a spectrum as sort of inherently suspect because we know that we can be tricked by people, you know, parading spectra. Mm -hmm. Well, anti-Semitism is an actual spectrum. There is rabid anti-Semitism, people who just think Jews should be wiped out, and we've seen them uh, chanting and celebrating in streets across the world. Um, There is an entire range to uh, slight suspicions that certain people harbor um, that uh, affect interactions. And I have never thought that uh, that Waters was a rabid anti-Semite in any way. I just think he has a little bit of bias that is, you know, no doubt tied up in complex feelings about the loss of his father and the nature of World War II and who knows whatever else. Um, and the friends he happens to have made um, are more likely to be Palestinians than Israelis. And I, th- I mean, I think that ends up predicting some amount of of this that if you know if you know someone with a personal story and they are on this side rather than that you are more likely to see that as the enemy who is doing ill in the world so for those who would ask why i think this 
after looking at lots of statements of Waters, looking at his desire, you know, in his art, he does stuff. He dresses up as a Nazi and he shoots at the audience um, as he is very clearly um, portraying Nazis as villains, right? So this is a guy whose art includes the portrayal of enemies for the purpose of the audience drawing the correct conclusion about them. But he also, you know, the flying pig that flies above his uh, concerts, he, you know, has put Jewish stars on them. They drop money. Uh, you know, he's had phrases put on them that are anti-Semitic. Now, it could be that this is Roger Waters doing the same thing he's doing when he uh, puts on a Nazi outfit and attempting to call attention to anti-Semitism, but it doesn't seem like that. And what's more, the thing that really caused me to draw a conclusion at all was people he has known well who report in their interactions, anti-Semitism is apparent to them, including David Gilmour. Right. So I don't think he's a rabid anti-Semite. And if we can get back to what he lays out in this um, letter of his, this open letter, uh, it actually gives us kind of an insight as to where he is. The letter, he is defending, he is both putting proposals on the table, which make no sense in light of where we are. But he is also describing the world that he wishes to see. And I guess I would actually just ask people who are trying to figure out what to do with Roger Waters to draw the following dichotomy. This is not a man with any demonstrated capacity to understand the, the difficulties that block us from getting from A to B. However, this is somebody with a very highly developed capacity to describe where it is that we should go. Mm -hmm. And so put aside completely, I, in my opinion, his suggestion of his solution fires, his, his, his solution-making, his process-oriented solution-making. But take very seriously Roger Waters' dream, and he describes it as a dream in this piece, because Roger Waters has had interesting dreams uh, over the course of many years, and he has often put them into his art. And those dreams, you know, for our audience members, let me just say that <clears throat> I am somebody who people often tell me that I'm very articulate. I believe that the reason that I am articulate, if in fact I am, has a lot to do with um, word play wordplay that came in the form of uh, playful banter at the dinner table, but maybe even more importantly, um, I pay very close attention to artfully constructed lyrics that are meaningful, that convey something important, and do so in a way that lodges them in the mind specially. And in, in any case, <clears throat> Waters has outlined various dreams. These are not things that Roger Waters knows how to accomplish, right? Mm -hmm. They may not even be reasonable places that could exist, but he has outlined some things in ways that resonate for those of us who hear them. And in one particular, so in the, in the letter here that he, he newly provides, he describes, in effect, a vision of a world after these conflicts are, uh, put Resolved. to rest. Mm -hmm. And that world is what I'm calling the West. This is a world in which everybody is 
equally protected by the structures. And it is, everybody is equally protected from the structures and protected in a way that liberates them. Do I believe that if Roger Waters was <clears throat> in a all-powerful position to construct that world, would he do it? Yes. Do I believe that he would include Jews in that world in which everybody was equally protected? I do believe that he would do it. There might be some little nagging thing that he would feel that that was unjust, perhaps. But nonetheless, I do think that he is telling it like it is with respect to what world he would like to see and that he is a bit confused about the world as it is and is confused about the rules that would allow us to get there. But um, I did want to point out one particular thing uh, from a... Uh, I think it is from the wall. It has to be from the wall. Um, I wanted to point to a set of lyrics that I have known since you and I met. That's uh, a long time ago. Um, it is from a song that I think is called The Gunner's Dream. The Gunner's Dream is the final cut. Oh, it's the final cut. Yeah. All right. Um, it I, I know that right away just because you and I talked about the Gunner's Dream earlier and I, and I went back and went listened back to and it. Yeah. yeah, I was, I, I had the feeling it was on the final cut, but then it narratively fits in with many of the things on the wall, which is why I was confused. But the final that, cut collects many of the things that were cut from earlier albums, I believe. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the Gunner's Dream is obviously a reference to his father. Um, his father, who died in World War II in Italy, um, I believe was shot down. And in the letter that Waters uh, released yesterday, um, he refers to his father uh, and the death of his father fighting the Nazis, and he refers to his father's dream, which he says he shares. So in the final cut, boy, I'm a little concerned about singing this. For one thing, uh, I'm still fighting that cough, and for another thing, it always breaks me up a little bit for reasons that I think will become obvious. Yeah. Um, so uh, it starts out... Um, this is verse two. Yeah. yeah. Um, a place to stay. Well, hold on, hold on. Uh, floating down through the clouds, my memories come rushing up to meet me now. And in the space between the heavens and the corner of some foreign field, I had a dream. I had a dream. A place to stay. Enough to eat. Somewhere old heroes shuffle safely down the street where you can speak out loud about your doubts and fears and what's more. No one ever disappears. You'll never hear their standard issue kicking in your door. You can relax on both sides of the tracks and maniacs. Don't blow holes in bandsmen by remote control. And everyone has recourse to the law. And no one kills the children anymore. So... Roger Waters describes the West, and he does it very eloquently. There are things included in those few lines that are 
beautiful in their compassion. The fact that he carves out a place for war heroes in a world without war. And the idea... In, in the same album in which he puts war criminals in a home the, for... Uh, the Fletcher Memorial, home, home for, for incurable tyrants and, and kings. kings. Yep. So this is important for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. The outline of what the West is, is vital, and people are losing track of it. And when I talk about the fact that lineage versus lineage violence is in a position to dislodge our understanding of the West and to replace it, because although the West is better, it is safer, it is fairer, it is less violent, it is more productive, it is more liberating, it is highly desirable for any human being to join something that is a stable version of the West, but it is fragile. It is easily vetoed by people who have something else in mind. Waters is laying out a picture of the West. And one of the things, as I revisited these lyrics for the first time in some time today, what I realized is the tragedy of how much farther we are from that description than we were even 25 years ago. The idea, you and I spend a lot of time worrying about what we say, what its impact on our safety will be. The idea that he expresses, where you can speak out loud about your doubts and fears, we cannot speak out loud about our doubts and fears, not in safety anyway. That is a tragedy that we have lost that. He talks about everyone has recourse to the law. That is not true anymore. That is, that is a reality that we had within our grasp, and it is slipping away because something else has taken hold. And no one kills the children anymore. anymore. Exactly. And the point is, this week, you can see the status of children in this. Even the mafia leaves children out. We are somewhere so desperately dangerous. Um, so... Um, I was going to sing a stanza. Go for it. Uh, from later in the same album, which is, I think, reflective of what many people are feeling right now. Um, the eponymous track from the album, The Final Cut. Through the fish-eyed lens of tear-stained eyes, I can barely define the shape of this moment in time. And far from flying high in clear blue skies, I'm spiraling down to the hole in the ground where I hide. This is where so many people are right now. It does not provide a solution does not provide a way forward. That is the stanza of this album that stuck with me the most from the 80s when I first heard it. As I understand it, it was written autobiographically. This is something that was supposed to be in the wall at first. Um, and it is written by someone who is desperate, who is dark, who is uh, at risk of ending himself 
which is never a place that I was. That was never me. Uh, and yet this always resonated. How, and you know, and, and it's poetry, as so much of what Waters writes is. I can barely define the shape of this moment in time. This is what we are all trying to do. And we are being told what the shape of this moment in time is. We are being told that some things are true that can't be. And we are being told that this is just like what has happened before and there's nothing new here. No. No. Well, let's, let's say this. I believe that we can be, we thinking people, we people who have not lost our minds in the last week, can be certain that we are being had. Yeah. We do not know who we are being had by. Right? At the very least, we can say that Hamas has engaged in an attack that it deliberately constructed to produce an overwhelming response. Why it wanted that overwhelming response, we don't know. Who its partners were, we don't know. But the point is, at the very least, we are being had that somebody as diabolical as that is in the position to define what the rest of the world is allowed to do. Right? That is intolerable. As for what we should do, we should think more carefully. And um, those of you who have been following me on Twitter know that I've been actually more successfully than I was expecting, conveying the importance of understanding that there are two ways we can go forward. Neither of them is rosy kumbaya. They are both versions of human competition. But one of them is honorable and productive and is actually the forge of very good things. And the other one is diabolical and terrible and the stuff of all of the tragedies of history. And we are literally standing, well, we are sitting, therefore we are not literally standing, but we are, we are literally faced, you know, we are figuratively <laughs> standing and faced with a choice between two futures. Rescued it, sort of. Um, we are faced with two futures, and we really have to choose. But I swear, the idea that people have the power to put you in a bind where you are told you have but one choice, that is them controlling you. To the extent that there is but one choice, that is something that you don't know, something you've never met, deciding on your fate. A wise person, a wise nation, a wise planet would never allow that to happen. I do not mean this to be trivializing, but I'm reminded of the words of Johnny Cash in a live, I, I don't remember if he's at, I think he's at one of his prison concerts. I don't remember if it's San Quentin maybe, but he says in speaking to the audience before asking them, to the inmates, his audience, uh, asking them what they wanted to sing, he says, <clears throat> you know, this is being broadcast to England and they're telling me where to stand and what to sing and everything. And I just, I don't play like that. It says, you put the screws on me, I'm going to screw right out from under you. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And I mean, th this is it, right? Like, it, you know, you, you tell me exactly what I need to do. And actually the move should be not if it's mandated by you. Right. It, it has to be because if, if, if we are ever in a position of saying, well, we had, we had no choice. We had to do the barbaric thing. Like create the choice. You, you have to create the choice because I mean, I think 
you know, I, re I really want you to be saying this part, but we were talking about this last night, like <clears throat> the part where the terrorists do X and therefore we have only one choice and it looks like we're obliterating terrorists, that is the terrorists winning because they have set your agenda for you. Yeah, they are in charge of your generals. Um, so let me, uh, I actually tweeted, uh, Zach, will you put up the tweet that I sent you? I think I more or less captured it. Um, so mm. what I said is, if terrorists can force the hand of mighty nations through acts of unimaginable barbarism directed against civilians, we should expect ever more shocking acts of barbarism to be inflicted on civilians as terrorists struggle to maintain control of the mighty armies they command. And just because a couple people misunderstood it, the armies that they command are the armies of the mighty nations. They are not the terrorist forces. Mm -hmm. My point is they have effectively gained control of, you know, uh, a yeah. modern army mm -hmm. by telling it what it has no choice but to do. And I would also point out um, many people are botching the analysis of what Israel should do, what the world should do, on the basis that the moral situation here is clear at the most basic level, right? Mm -hmm. The barbarism of the act leaves zero moral ambiguity whatsoever about the perpetrators. What we don't know, we know who some of the perpetrators are. Hamas are perpetrators. Mm -hmm. Are they the only perpetrators? We don't know. The status of Iran is ambiguous. If Iran is responsible for this act, more than just favorable towards this act, then that puts it in a position uh, of moral identity with those who committed the act. Likewise, if these Hamas members trained outside of Gaza, maybe they trained in Iran, that would be one thing, but maybe they trained somewhere else. But in essence, there's a question of who is on the list of people responsible for this. And that is a very, it is a question that we must get right. And we cannot wait to get it right. That does not mean that Israel should hold its fire relative to Hamas. But it does mean that no exploration of culpability is complete until you have the full list of people who are actually culpable, wherever they come from. So uh, I, I'm troubled by the failure of people to spot that second question because the first question is so clear and people don't all get it, right? They're so interested in nailing the certainty of the moral question, which is frankly a simple one, that they... Um, misunderstand that there are other questions that actually have to be asked at this moment, which I don't know how to make this point. It seems to me that this is, this is a, if there's any point that shouldn't need to be made, it's this one. How many famous examples would we need of places where great nations went to war under false pretenses for us to get the idea that any time you are marching to war, you have to investigate the question of whether somebody is actually leading you to do their bidding and you 
are operating on the basis of a moral clarity uh, for somebody else's cynical gain. And I would just point out, um, you know, remember the main, right? The sinking of the main in the Havana Harbor, the Tonkin Gulf incident, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. The list of these things is long and it extends well into modernity. So the idea that we should not be asking those questions now, no, this is the only time to be asking those questions. As you are marching to war, figuring out whose bidding you are doing is essential, right? We must be unflinching about that for now and forever after. There is no question about it because the demonstrated capacity of people to drive us to war under false pretenses is unambiguous. It is just historically clear. If there is any pattern that is clear, this is it. So I do wonder how we have forgotten that lesson. I think people are under some kind of spell. It does feel like a, a mass formation spell that has people arguing viciously in many cases not to ask these questions. And those people are wrong. No one can make out the shape of this moment in time. And those who are trying are being told to sit down and shut up already. Yes, they are being told to sit down and shut up already. And I must say, um, I was very unhappy to see some of the pushback that uh, Ifrat Fenixen got for our podcast. People accused her of all sorts of things, like misportraying her level of expertise, which she absolutely did not do. She did not portray herself as an expert. She explained exactly what her uh, understanding was based on. And the audience, because the audience is composed of people with a brain, is full well capable of placing her uh, understanding in context. What's more, nothing about what concerned people in that podcast is dependent on expert insight. In other words, if I may just paint an, uh, an uncomfortable parallel, the, what would be necessary to explain the failure of the IDF to either protect the border or to have a rapid reaction force that could cover for the fact that it had failed to protect the border is um, implausible in a way that we have not uh, seen before. And my point is simply, if you try to, the idea that there's something that we don't know because we're not insiders and that it is somehow vital to our understanding of whether or not what took place makes sense or doesn't make sense according to the version of events we've been uh, portrayed, is not plausible. It doesn't make sense. You would have to have, you know, some explanation where, you know, the entire IDF or the entire uh, governance structure of the IDF had decided to take hallucinogenic drugs for a month, and that's why they missed it, right? You need some industrial strength explanation that just is nowhere uh, nowhere in sight. So anyway, I will leave that uh, question aside, but I do think in asking um, how we got here, who is it that wants us to make what moves, and by us, I just mean all of the parties involved, which frankly involves everyone on earth. We all have interests tied up in this situation. Um, but it is, uh, it is very important that we not forget what we knew even a few years ago. And if there's one lesson that crosses all of the crises we've seen in recent history, it's that 
people very quickly forget things that they understood very, very well that are important to defending their uh, interests in the world. And we are in the process of doing that and uh, we have to cut it out. So there are a number of other things we were thinking about talking about today, and I think we'll save most of them, but uh, you specifically wanted to discuss one thing that you think we used to all know that we have forgotten. Do you, do you want to go there? Um, sure. Since that is what you were just talking about, you just didn't yeah, get to the punchline that I thought. complete the thought. Yeah. Um, I am spooked by the fact that we are not... As far as I can tell, I haven't heard any, and you know, I obviously haven't read everything, um, but I have not heard discussion of the status of the neocons in the current scenario. Now, the neocons, for those who aren't real familiar with that term, were a group of uh, American uh, thought leaders, for lack of a better term, um, ferociously pro-Israel, but also uh, decidedly in favor of using American military might to reorganize the Middle East, right? These were people who claimed that they were liberals who had been mugged by reality and had grown up and realized the world was a dangerous place and that if we were going to make it a better place, we were going to have to go use American military might to fix stuff. You know, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Bill Crystal, David Frum, all sorts of folks. Norman Potteritz. Um, so the question is, the reason I raise this question is that back in the post-9-11 era, the idea that there were a series of wars that needed to be fought um, that would make the world a better, safer place in the end, and that the adults understood this. It was kind of the neocon line. And... They wanted to go into Iraq. They wanted to go into Iran. They didn't get their war in Iran because the war in Iraq and Afghanistan turned into quagmires and bankrupted us, and there was just no way that they were going to do it. So they sort of disappeared from view for a while. And they're not in view now, really. I mean, we know, you know, we see their Twitter accounts, but they're not being discussed as, as players in this game. And in fact, you know, some of them have died and, you know, maybe maybe they're just not players in this game and they're spectators like the rest of us. But I don't think that that's in any way certain. And in fact, I have the sense that one of the things, you know, time has moved on. The neocons are now on the blue team. That's an interesting development, right? They're partnered with the blue team. Right? So what that means is that as power shifted from the red team to the blue team, the neocons moved over to the blue team. So they're still in power in some way. Um, and the question is, okay, we're being told that a war with Iran is necessary because Iran, Iran uh, backed this uh, attack by Hamas. Um, well, you know, I, I don't know what's true. But what I do want to know is that a group of people who had an idea 20 years ago that American military might was going to be necessary to reorganize the Middle East, and that involves going after Iran at some point, I want to know that they are not driving us to do that very thing 
in a moment in which the world is maximally hospitable to the idea that something has to be done because of the barbarism of Hamas, um, etc. So, uh, I don't know what to make of this. I guess I'm hoping people will connect some dots. What is the neocons' role at the moment? Why are we not talking about the fact that something that they wanted and didn't get many years ago is now back on the table as a result of events that we are told compel us, right? Is that happenstance? Could well be, but it is not inherently happenstance. And is there a new generation of neocons that don't fly under that banner, and so we don't think of them in this way, who might be uh, advancing these ideas in places that we should be aware that they are not just simply responding to events, but that actually there is potentially some um, private analysis shared between them and not with us that suggests uh, a requirement, you know, and I would imagine it would be phrased in a similar way, that, you know, the adults understand it's a dangerous world, certain things have to occur, this is the moment in which they are possible because the world is now sympathetic, blah, 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 blah. Is that conversation happening? And is that conversation driving us in ways that we can't hear it out here in public because we all have everything at stake here, right? I keep saying we are in a battle between the West and lineage displacement. These are the two versions of the world going forward. We have everything at stake in what happens. And the problem is that the Middle East is in a position to drag us back into lineage displacement competition, right? Which will be a disaster for all of us. And if we are to protect our interests, our interests involve, in my podcast with Ifrant, I said, Israel has a foot in both of these worlds. I think Israel, given the freedom to choose, would choose to be a modern Western nation, but it may not have the freedom to choose because of its, its context. So I don't, know how to, I don't know how to put it any more clearly. The world's interests are tied up in this battle in the Middle East, and the dynamics are not symmetrical. It's not like good will prevail. In fact, I think what is most likely to happen is that evil will prevail, and evil will prevail in the form of a return that will spread across the globe to lineage displacement competition, right? All of the tragedies of history arise out of that bad pattern. And if we are to avoid them, we have to become aware of it, and we have to... Uh, start navigating based on a long-term view of what's good for humans. Indeed. <clears throat> um, all right. I think I agree with you. I don't think I have anything to add. I think, I yes. think we've arrived at the end. Crossed many a Rubicon. Um, I don't think that's how that works, but <laughs> yeah, I don't really know. Either, but, yeah. uh... um, all right. Uh, we'll be back with another live stream in three days, uh, Tuesday at 11.30 a.m. Pacific. And uh, we will have a private Q&A tomorrow on Sunday, October 15th uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, which you can uh, join us at at our locals. We encourage you to join us there for all sorts of reasons. Um, other things are still true. You can find my writing at Natural Selections. Uh, you can find merchandise, uh, including getting your Jake's Micro Pizza uh, shirt at darkhorsestore.org. Yum. 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 <laughs>
Yeah. Uh, Jake's micro pizza comes in all the flavors you have uh, uh, come to expect at your favorite pizza parlor. Uh, it's a little smaller than you will have come to expect, but uh, uh, it's just like as delicious. regular pizza, only tastier and much, much, much smaller. So much smaller. Yes. Um, Jake's micro pizza. I'll put on my mask when I'm done eating. Um, so yeah, you can get that and other things at darkhorsestore.org. Um, a reminder, um, check out our sponsors this week. Uh, if you have uh, an interest in a new kind of dentifrice biome, uh, new kind of dog food, Sundays, and also uh, yum. Also yum, apparently. Brett has tried it. And a uh, new kind of seed, uh, a new kind of seed, a new kind of probiotic <laughs> seed. Um, and they're, they're all um, interesting. They're all actually shelf stable um, in a way that is not scary, uh, which is unusual. Usually yeah. shelf stability uh, ends up uh, causing all sorts of trouble. But Let's put them on a stable shelf. Yeah. Um, I have one last note before before we get to sign-offs. You yeah. tell me when. This is it? Go for it. Okay. Uh, the one <laughs> final note. I forgot to say this. Uh, if Roger Waters wants to talk this through, I think it could be really cathartic for lots of people who have ambiguous feelings and are trying to work them out. So I would absolutely welcome that conversation. Um, and uh, we'll probably be nearby soon, Roger. So think about it and uh, get in touch. So um, please subscribe, like, share on Rumble and elsewhere, but Rumble and Locals um, do us the most good and are the, uh, the platforms that are most resistant to censorship and most in favor of free speech of, of any uh, that we know and that we are associated with. So uh, please come join us at Rumble and Locals. And until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Apologies for the singing. <laughs>